chapter 9, verse 11 of Matthew. And I will say once again, if you're not doing it, please do it. If you are not watching The Chosen or have not watched The Chosen, this bring, it brings this all to life because it is this that they're talking about. It, they're, of course, it's you know they're trying very hard to be accurate, but there are some things they take artistic license with. Don't be offended by that, but... Wow, you know, it's on all the streaming services. Uh, the first season's free. The second season, I think you can purchase or free if you do some kind of fancy stuff. My son tried to tell me how to do it, and I went, I'll just buy it on Prime instead of doing all that stuff. You know, I think I had to connect to a satellite in the Ukraine or something. Um, but if you get a chance to watch it, honestly, it's done by Christians. Uh, I believe the guy that plays Jesus, who does a profound job uh was a, a an avowed catholic and it's like this mix of people that just and i believe they're working on season three now season two leaves off right about where we are at, at the uh, sermon on the mount that's right where it leaves off and so they're probably going to need 10 seasons to get you know they're doing it man everything that we've talked about in detail is there and it's kind of cool so having said that uh it would really help with matthew because a lot of the story revolves around Matthew, which is kind of cool. All righty. Uh, Jesus had just uh, talked to a tax collector. And then it happened with, uh, and that is the author of this book, by the way. And he's all excited, Matthew, the tax collector. And tax collectors, as we know, are, well, you should know, is, are just absolutely despised. They're the traitors. They're the ones who work for the occupying Romans who take your money and give it to the Romans. And they're also very well known to just keep some of the money for themselves. Charge you more than what the Romans want and get rich off of you. To oppress your own people, basically, is how they're viewed. Uh, but Jesus uh, calls Matthew to be his disciple. He goes to Matthew's house. And he reclines with them. And uh, verse 10 says, Then it happened that Jesus was reclining at the table in the house. Behold, many, many tax collectors. Uh, which tells you that tax collectors are everywhere. Now, I, I hear the current administration is going to hire like 80,000 new IRS agents. And that's going to shiver down my spine. <laughs> uh, so for there, uh, all this gathering of tax collectors in one house. And it says, Tax collectors and sinners. It's nice to be known, <laughs> looped in with sinners. And they were eating together in the house. Well, of course, the Pharisees uh, see this. And that's where we come in. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Jesus' disciples, Why is your teacher eating with tax collectors and sinners? Uh, by eating with them, Jesus was attacking the righteousness that the Pharisees stood on. See, Jesus didn't do anything by accident. Uh, he knew exactly what, was, what he was doing. He knew exactly who would be there. And he knew exactly why he wanted to eat with them. And this is one of the reasons, not just for them. Of course, the main reason is for the, the sinners who come to eat with him. Uh, but there's this other thing that's always going on between uh, the law, let's just put it this way, the law and grace. The battle that's being fought here is between the law and grace, where there shouldn't be a battle. You know, the two are in harmony. You know, uh, grace is the ultimate extension of the law. 
But people, especially religious leaders who had built their lives around the law, and their power, their social power, was based on the law, uh, were threatened by grace. And believe me, Jesus sitting there eating with the tax collectors and sinners was an act of grace. Uh, because none of the Pharisees would ever do that. Ever. Um, so he's attacking everything they hold dear and everything that makes them important just by sitting down and eating. Uh, it's the I'm not as bad as them defense that people live on and thrive on that will do nothing for them before the uh, throne of God. Um, it's not just the Pharisees, and I think that's what I want you to see, that before we come to the conclusion of how bad we really are, many of us, most of us, are relying on heaven uh, through the idea of I'm not as bad as bad people. And that's a fallacy. It, it is the great lie of Satan. It is the great lie. It's the lie we want to hear. Uh, you, you ask people who, who don't really spend a lot of time with the Lord, who don't know the Lord, hey, do you think you're going to go to heaven? Well, yeah, I'm not that bad. It's, or a version of that. And like, wow, you're going to hell. <laughs> don't you understand? There is no such thing as not that bad. Um, you, you know, it, all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. There is no way to get to heaven but the guy who came to the sinners and uh, it also if if you want to go that deep the fact that he's going and ministering to sinners uh, also speaks a little bit towards uh, free will if you will uh, that uh, it's not already been determined who will Jesus came to say I came to seek to seek and save that which is lost well the whole idea of predestination is there that would be useless uh, because if they're lost, they're lost, and there's nothing you can do. So, just a little note on that. Um, all who don't believe uh, they must repent are doomed. There is no person who does not need to repent to come to the grace of the Lord. Uh, and what the Pharisees believed is they had no reason to repent. As Roger Daltrey sang, I don't need to be forgiven. Um from Bubba O'Reilly, for those of you who are old enough to know that. Uh, note, uh, this: when they come and talk to the disciples, the Pharisees, it's an accusation that's actually hidden in a question. I mean, it's not just a question, it's an accusation. You know, you know there's something wrong with your leader. You know, look what he's doing. They phrase it as a question as to, you know, it's that snake stuff. Uh, there's a word for that, I forget what it is. Um, anyway, your master must be a sinner if he's associating with sinners, is what they're saying with a question. This profoundly challenged the Pharisees' theology and their views about works and grace. Grace confused them. Uh, well, first off, it challenged them. Uh, it said something about God they didn't understand, or more importantly, they didn't appreciate. They wanted the God to be the God that they had built in their minds, that they had built their lives around. Um, uh, the God that I'll do all these things under the law and God will get me through. The law, let me be clear, the law has never saved one person ever. It was never designed to save anybody. It's not its purpose. Uh, I preached a few weeks back where it's, the scripture says, the law came so sin would increase so that no one uh, could claim righteousness. The law just shows you you're sick. That's all it does. 
Jesus Christ, and it leads you to Jesus Christ, the cure. So by Jesus doing this, he's telling these people they're sick. I'm here. I'm the cure. I'm here to help these sick people. And you're telling me I shouldn't be doing it. They're not worthy of it. Well, who is? I guess instead of being happy for the inclusion of these sinners, they resented it. And sometimes we got to ask ourselves, am I guilty of this? You know, the, the people who I despise, the people who I don't really like. Um, when you see God blessing them, does it bother you? I guess that's something we all have to deal with. Uh, Luke 18, 9 through... Oh, I didn't start my clock. Uh, I'll just set it here. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Darn. First failure of the year. Uh, Luke 18, 9 through 14. And he also told this parable, some people who trusted in themselves... And believe me, that is going to send more people to hell than demon worship, than homosexuality, than any other thing we brand it, than being a Democrat or a far right-wing Republican. This is what sends people to hell. That they were righteous and they viewed others with contempt. God don't like that. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> so, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and then there's the really bad people, the tax collectors. I fast twice a week. I pray tithes on all I pay tithes on all things I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified, forgiven, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Man, that should be on a bumper sticker. That should be on our refrigerators. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 19, 7 through 10, uh, it's about the chief tax collector. He was very rich. And they, when they saw it, they all began grumbling, saying, He has gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Because he too is a son of Abraham. He's what God had called to be his people. Now this is before the resurrection. This is before self. I mean, this is a guy who was doing it under the law. And understood that part of the law was to bring you to repentance. And this is repentance. Now the reason this matters and the reason I brought this up is because the parable right before it. Zacchaeus is that guy. He's the guy. He's the tax collector in the parable before this. The, the tax collector who humbles himself. And then Jesus, actually, it happens. I mean, Zacchaeus was extremely rich. And he, so what are the qualifications of repentance? And did not Jesus, did not John come repeating, uh, preaching repentance? Did not Jesus preach repentance? Did he not send his people, his disciples out to preach repentance? None of that, none of that sank into the Pharisees. But this tax collector got it. And he tells him, you're saved. Whoa. For the Son is man, has come to seek 
and to save that which is lost. That's where that is. It's right after Zacchaeus. I mean, we, we quote it a lot, but connect it to Zacchaeus and his repentance. 1 Timothy 1, 15-16 is a trustworthy statement deserving a full acceptance. <laughs> you don't see, Whenever you have Paul write something like that, pay attention. It's important. Well, it's all important, but this is something... Uh, whenever I see something like this, it, it tells me that this is something that we often get wrong. And he's trying to make sure we get it right. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am the foremost of all. This is Paul. That's not hyperbole. He means it. He knows it. He believes it. He has nothing to stand on. He understands that. This isn't just a guy false humility. No, he knows he is the foremost of all. Uh, and when the foremost of all gets saved, to whom much is given, much is expected, and also much is appreciated. Uh, yet for this reason, I found mercy. So that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. What he's saying is, Jesus Christ can save me, he can save you. I'm the example. He picked me for a reason. He picked this horrible sinner who was killing Christians for a particular reason. So that we could look at him and know that we too could be saved. You know, sometimes the lie of Satan is, oh, well, as always, Satan always is whispering the two great lies. Go ahead, God, you know, that's not a sin. Go ahead, do it. Do that sin. Ah, did God really say that? Did God really mean that? The things he whispered in the garden, he whispers all the time. And the next great lie after you do it is, oh, what did you do? You can't be saved for that. You can't be saved from it. The two great lies, and here he dispels them both. Verse 12. But when Jesus heard this, he said, It's not those who are healthy you need the physician, but those who are sick. Jesus makes it clear that he came to help those who knew they fell short and admitted they needed help. He did not come for the elect, but for the lost, to seek them out and to save them. It is noteworthy that the Pharisees addressed the disciples with their question. <laughs> I, I find this fascinating. They didn't say it to Jesus. Remember, they asked the disciples. Jesus is right there. Perhaps trying to uh, drive a wedge between Jesus and his disciples would be my thinking. Or, they were so intimidated by every time they confronted Jesus and he basically verbally slapped them around and humiliated them. It's either both of those things or one of those two things. But just Jesus knowing what they asked, he said when he heard it, uh, I'm not sure where he heard it from. But how many times in Scripture does Jesus know what people are thinking and addresses what they're thinking before they say it? I mean, it's continuous, especially in Matthew. Uh, addresses then. So they go to the disciples and try to go you know, covertly with their accusations. Jesus has nothing to do with that. He doesn't go back to his disciples and answer it. He just looks them right in the eye, and directs it towards them. He says to them, Go and learn what this means. <laughs> These are the religious teachers. He's telling them, Learn something. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
Jesus uses that exact same verbiage in Matthew 12, 7. Speaking to the same people. So, like three chapters later, he has to say the same thing to these same people. Please, you didn't hear me the first time. Go and learn what this means. You haven't learned it. I told you to go learn it. You didn't. Uh, Jesus tells them they lack compassion for lost sinners. They have no grace. And this compassion is what God not only desires, but requires from all of us. Uh, forgiveness requires forgiveness on your part. What God desires is what God requires. It's just that simple. Jesus is quoting Hosea 6.6 6 to them. They all know that verse. It's a well-known verse. They, they say it every day. I bet it was said almost every day by each one of them. He's telling the religious leaders, go and learn what Scripture means, not just what it says. This demand is a demand to all of us, especially those who use Scripture to back their beliefs and their desires, what they want to be true. This command makes all of us responsible to know what we quote, what it really means. This implies that it is, no, that it is knowable. That's the important part. Go and learn what it means. Well, he wouldn't have said that if it wasn't, if they couldn't have learned it. He was not mocking them. He's telling them. You just have to want to know. They didn't want to know. They liked, it's, they liked it saying what they wanted it to say. They didn't really care what God really meant by it. It speaks to our attitude towards those who are lost in their sin. It can condemn and point them out, but this does not show them the compassion that God has shown us. Um, I'm, you know, I'm guilty of this at times when I see people do horrific things or I hear on the news this or that, and you know, I, I just think they are beyond salvation. Um, well, if they're beyond salvation, so am I. It's just the truth of the matter. I, I'll say it again. I've said it many times, and I hope it's sinking in. There is so very little that separates the best of us from the worst of us. So very little. Uh, a few circumstances, a few encounters, uh, a few experiences. Uh, honestly, um, God knows the difference. While we're here, Hosea 6.6 6 says, For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, in the knowledge of God rather than in burnt offerings. There is a great lesson here regarding Scripture. Now, I like that this is worded this way in the New American Standard. You're wondering, what does loyalty have to do with this? Uh, not all words in the original language have a direct corresponding word in English. We, they have a word that means something that we don't have a word to mean. So we pick a whole bunch of words because all the words apply. And when you read this verse in different translations, some will say loyalty, others will say compassion, others will say, they're all right. <laughs> they are all right. Uh, because that is the meaning of the Hebrew word. We'll get to that. It says, uh, we don't have a word that means anything the original word means. The fourth word in Hosea 6.6 6 is a prime example. Now, this is a lesson about Bible study. We're, we're going to go there now. So we're going to step out of what Jesus is doing and just... Because it's important. Because you could read this sometimes you go, what? Jesus said compassion. This doesn't say compassion. Did Jesus quote it wrong? No, we translated it in the best way we could. 
it, which is cool because the more it makes you look into it, the more you appreciate it. Um, it's a very important word. Um, the New American Standard translates, and as you know, I use the New American Standard because it is still regarded as the most accurate. Uh, maybe not the most readable, but it's the most accurate. Uh, of loyalty appears to be different than what Jesus is saying in this verse, which is compassion. Elios, the, the aromatic word or the Greek word. One of the rare instances where I prefer the translation other than the American Standard. Jesus says in an aromatic, a quote from the Old Testament that was in Hebrew, then it is translated into Greek, then it is translated into English. So do you see what happened? It was written in Hebrew, Jesus said in Aramaic, it was written in Greek, and then we translated the Greek to Hebrew, and it's not a word we have. So, God bless the scholars who dedicate their lives to this. I mean it. Uh, they are called to care for the Word of God, and they are there working in the bowels of the ship. We don't even know they're there. They're down in the engine room, sweating and toiling. Nobody appreciates them. Nobody gives them any kudos. They just labor. And we all move forward because they are. So pray for the people who work on Scripture. New American Standard, the Berean, the King's James translated as mercy. Loyalty is used in several other translations, generally referring to steadfastness and belief and dedication. The Hebrew word is one of the most important words to understand the Old Testament. I assume it is translated as loyalty because in 6.4, Hosea 6.4, God says that Israel has no loyalty, which is why he desires it in verse 6. And that word loyalty means something a little deeper than it does to that simple of, I'll stick with you. It, 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 it means an emotional attachment, a care for. Hosea 6 4 says, What shall I do with you, o Ephraim, which is a part of Israel? That sh What shall I do with you, O Judah, another part? You, for your loyalty is like the morning cloud and like the dew which goes away early. So, two verses later, they're referring to it. For verse 4, the numerous standard puts a caveat next to loyalty. There, it puts a caveat that says loving kindness. So those little caveats mean something. Those little numbers. So what he's saying, <laughs> here we recognize that it's loving kindness. The translators have recognized that that word loyalty is deeper than ours. It's still the right word, but they have to, it's so different that they have to put a caveat saying it's a loyalty of loving kindness. It's a loyalty that comes from love and kindness. It's not a loyalty because uh, you're afraid. It's not a loyalty because you want something from somebody. It's a loyalty because of love and kindness. So it's used there, and then when Jesus, two verses later, translates it as compassion, it starts to make sense. Um, which is the foundation of mercy and compassion, loving kindness. If there is no loving kindness, there is no mercy, there is no compassion. Now, just so we, for our sake, loyal under Webster's means faithful to a private person to whom faithfulness is due. Rendering unto God what is God's, basically. Doing what he tells you to do. Now, the Cambridge puts loyal as, see, our own words, if we, do, if we get confused by their words, we confuse by our own words, which is why verbiage matters. Uh, 
loyal, always giving help and encouragement. The Cambridge Dictionary involved, de, uh, describes loyal as always giving help and encouragement, which is much closer to what Jesus says when he quotes Hosea 6.6. 6. Now, Hosea, according to Vines, the word that used there is hased, uh, C-H-E-C-E-D, which is pronounced hased. It's used 241 times in the Old Testament, mostly in Psalms, and we are having a hard time figuring out what exactly what it means. Uh, Matthew, which we're reading now in the Greek, Vines, uh, says that uh, the word compassion, that the word compassion, the actual word there is elios, is the outcome, outward manifestation of pity. Uh, it assumes need, this is important, it assumes a need on the part of him who receives it and resources adequate to meet the need on the part of him who shows it. So when Jesus said Elios, when he said the Aramaic, Adam, uh, the Aramaic word and it was translated to this Greek word, that's the meaning and we ended up with the word loyalty, which all comes back to this. It assumes a need on the person who receives that uh, compassion and it also assumes the resources to meet the need by the person who sees it that's what God wants if you see a need and you could fix it fix it if you can address it address it and that's what he's talking about Jesus is saying don't you see the need of these sinners don't you see the need of these tax collectors and these sinners don't you care what I require from you is that you meet it. And all you have to do to meet it is care about them. He's not asking them to buy them a car or a donkey or a cart. He's just saying, have some compassion here. You, you get the feeling that Jesus is mad. He's very angry because these are the people who are supposed to represent him to God's people. These are the clergy. And he, throughout Matthew, he's not happy with them at all. He's the only, they're the only people that Jesus actually uh, continued. Well, it started with John, moved to Jesus, who continually confronted. And he came across prostitutes, tax collectors, all sorts of sinners. Uh, you know, a, a zealot who murdered people, was freed because of him. Never a word about those people. But man, did he come after the people who abused his word. Okay, both words refer primarily to a mutual and reciprocal rights and obligations between the parties of a relationship. Now, let's expand that out a little further. Let's look at Yahweh and Israel. You see how deep this is. The reason God demands it is because it's what God has been doing for Israel and his people. He sees the need. He wants to meet the need. Only he can meet it. And he does. He expects the same from the people who received grace to give grace. It's expected. And we take, now because he hasn't died, rose from the dead yet, we're still dealing with Israel, but then it applies to us through the grace of what Jesus Christ meeting our need. And, you know, if the, to whom much is forgiven, much is expected is in forgiveness. Okay. But a said is not a matter of obligation. This is important. It's not law. It's a matter of generosity. It's not only a matter of loyalty, but a, ladder, a matter of mercy. And those two get combined in the Hebrew. The weaker party seeks the protection and blessing of the patron. They came to Jesus, these tax collectors, these sinners. Uh, 
and a protector. But he, he not, but he may not lay absolute claim to them. I mean, you may seek somebody out to help you, and they may go, I don't know who you are, and I have no, nothing connected to you. The stronger party remains committed to his promise, but retains his freedom, especially with regard to the manner in which he will implement those promises. So when you come to Jesus and you ask him to help you, you ask him to save you, he says, I will. But he's not going to do it like you want him to do it. He's not going to answer your prayers the way you demand him to answer them. He retains the freedom to address your needs the way he knows is best. That's all in this word. You know, uh, he's made the promise, I will, but I'll do it my way. I'm not going to do it the way you want me to do it. Now let's look at the Pharisees. They wanted God to be that way. And he's saying, no, absolutely not. Who are you? It's, uh, said implies personal involvement and commitment in a relationship beyond the rule of law. It goes to the heart of the law, not the letter of the law. Uh, okay, let me finish this and then I'll we'll finish up. Marital love is often related to hased, the same word. The word that Jesus uses is loyalty, that um, Jose uses compassion. Marriage certainly is a legal matter. And there are legal sanctions or infractions. Yet the relationship, if sound, far transcends the legalities far transcends it. The prophet Hosea applies the analogy to Yahweh's hased to Israel within the covenant. Hence, devotion is sometimes the single English word best capable of capturing the nuance of the original. Maybe the best English word we could come up with is devotion. I demand devotion to other people because I've showed devotion to you. Um, the Revised Standard attempts to bring this up by its translation of steadfast love. Hebrews writers often underscore the element of steadfastness or strength by pairing hasad with emet, truth and reliability, and hamad, which is faithfulness. The, those words are always so often linked together. One comes right after the other. Randolph Richards wrote, misreading script in his book, Misreading uh, Scripture with Western Eyes, Old Testament scholars will be quick to point out the challenges of translating hased. In the New American Standard, we see it translated lots of ways. Loving kindness, loyalty, lovingness, uh, mercy. Uh, hased doesn't mean a lot of things. But we need a lot of English words to circle around a concept for which we don't have a word. It doesn't mean a lot of things. We have to come up with a lot of words to define what it means. And it's not the only word like this in Scripture. Sometimes it's worth the look. You know, when it confuses you, when you read a word or a phrase that goes, that doesn't seem to fit with everything else that's said. When you look into it, you'll see why. said is a kind of loyal, merciful, faithful, the sort of, <laughs> that shows up in action. It's not a matter, it, it, it's the heart doing something what he uses the word a kind of love there so what jesus is saying to him love people dude i mean in the end that word loyalty <laughs> it means all of this uh wow i wrote a lot on this i think you get the point i'll skip this other stuff 
But if you want to look at something interesting about this, take a look at Isaiah 1, 10 through 20. Uh, it, the word is used in there, and you can see that it uh, jumps around a bit. Now, just one more thing, a quick quote from another guy. It says, the theological importance of the word has said is that it stands for more than any other word for the attitude which both parties of a covenant ought to maintain towards each other. So what it's saying is, when Jesus says that to them, he says there is a covenant between us and everyone else on this planet. There should be a covenant of care uh, for everyone else that's on this globe as we circle around it uh, god only knows what speed you know around the sun and the whole thing spinning while all that's happening we should be doing that uh, a covenant towards each other god expects it because god cares about everyone we are his children and he expects it from us he expects us to show the mercy and the grace that we were shown if you know that parable about the person who was forgiven much and then wouldn't forgive somebody else how angry God got. I mean, you can't get away from the dire consequences for the person doing that. You know, you'll be beaten, burned, thrown to the fire, and like, oh yeah, I ain't happy with you. So, hopefully that gives us some clarity. Not just for this, and the reason I went so far is because these sort of things come up all the time. Well, not all the time, but occasionally. And I just want to let you know it's worth looking into. Uh, you know, go to BibleHub.com, put it, put the verse in, uh, read the verse in a couple translations, and then move on down below where it has all the uh, commentaries, and see what the people who dedicated their lives to this stuff have found. You know, and sometimes you'll see they found different things, but it's worth the effort because it gives you great clarity. Because before I looked into this, it sort of troubled me that he said loyalty and yet Hosea said compassion. Because I couldn't put the two together. Now, they seem like two randomly different things. But here it is, and we will end there. And we will pick up on... How many verses did we go? Oh, not too many. <laughs> it's a rip-roaring start. Yeah, we're, we're blazing through <laughs> Matthew. <laughs> At least we can go backwards. Yeah, we, well, <laughs> not this week. <laughs> not this week. So we finished on 15, I believe, right? Yeah. Does that sound right we to everybody? Did? No. 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 Do we even 12. do 13? Oh. I don't think we even did 13. Puppy. <laughs> 12. No, are we on 12 or are we on 13? We're on 13. Okay. Let, me see. <laughs> Let me see what I did and didn't do. You know what? I can't find verse 14. Did I delete it? <laughs> Uh, verse 14 no, I, is about fasting. Uh, yeah, so I need to find it so I know where I left off. If, okay. I, if, I, if Somehow, in the midst of all this stuff I was pasting in here, I made 14 go away. I need to know that. Bear with me. Well, let's pray and then I'll find it. You can all go. Father, uh, as always, we thank you for your word. And we just ask that your word find a home in our heart and change us, Lord. Uh, we're here because we want to know. And we know your spirit is here willing to help. Uh, thank you for your presence. Thank you for your insight. And thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, watch over uh, all these folks here. Make them strong, wise, brave, and compassionate. Help them to glorify your name and what they think, do, and say. In Jesus' name, amen.